What's good, family? We know you're enjoying today's episode of New New Magodcast with none other than Norman Brown, the professor. But we had to interrupt briefly to tell you about Norman's latest book. Recently, with all that's been happening with the pandemic, many have had questions. And in May 2020, Norman was hospitalized for nine days with COVID-19. When he came out of the hospital, he came out with a powerful testimony of how God saved him from death and his inspiration to write his newest book, Covert COVID-19, An Attack on Kingdom Agendas. Now, in this book, he shares his personal story of how he was attacked by the spirit that causes this virus as he declared war while he was writing this book, but he overcame it through faith, prayer, and fasting. In the book, he shares the revelation that God gave him about how this virus affected and exposed certain things about the church at large, which are necessary for believers to understand what's going on and this new thing God is doing in the earth. His book is available for download today on Amazon, so get your copy today. Hey everyone, this is George A. Wood, and you are listening to New Numa Godcast with my man Norman, where he brings it raw and real. Check him out here. He's always got the next best conversation going on, but he has it raw and real for you here. Check him out. What's good, New Numa fam? I'm your host, Norm the Professor, a.k.a. Norman Brown. Welcome to the podcast where you come to get the real from a biblical perspective. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I'd like to personally welcome you and want to let you know a little about what you may expect. I attack the raw issues affecting the church and the world at large today, giving you biblical backup for everything I say. Basically, this podcast gets in your face with issues that are trending, taboo, and tough to talk about, which today's watered-down churches don't even touch. I also interview Christians of all types of backgrounds, careers, ministries, and more to put on record their stories of redemption, salvation, and victory to inspire you to walk out your kingdom purpose to expand the kingdom of God and the earth. If you want the truth, this is definitely a podcast you want to hear. So get your spiritual ears ready to hear what the Lord is saying to the church. Peace. Yeah, I would listen to, you know, 666, Number of the Beast, Run to the Hills, that whole album, and, you know, whatever. would get into the, you know, using the Ouija board and trying to mess around with spirits and, and things like that in my basement. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just a thing. So, okay, I want you to go back a little bit. So I want to know about this haunted house. So what kind of things were happening? Man, let me just tell you. So, um, you know, there was, there was one time, one of the scariest thing that ever happened to me in my life. It was like, you know, the house was like a three-story house. And, and, you know, and I was sort of on this middle, in the middle floor one day. And my mother had left to go out and party or whatever. And I was, as soon as it, it was weird, I had been in the house. I never had this thought before that somebody was in there, but uh, for whatever reason, I, I was standing in the middle of my living room and I felt like somebody was in the house. And just then I heard like these footsteps of somebody above me, you know, sort of like walking really fast or running towards the staircase that would have led down to me. And I mean, as clear as day, it was somebody, some footsteps. And I, like, hightailed it out of the house, and that, like, scarred me. I was afraid to be alone for for years. I still honestly don't like to be alone. So that's how bad it was. But 
we would constantly have doors, you know, opening and shutting and, and, you know, things being moved around in the house, uh, upstairs in our top floor on multiple occasions, random, totally different people over the years would sleep in this one room and, you know, maybe like we'd been go out and get partying together and I'd be passed out in my bedroom, which is on the second floor and I'd put them on, in the upstairs room. Sometimes I would do it as a joke because I knew something was going to happen. And, uh, you know, I'd wake up the next morning and they'd be on the couch in my room or something. And I'd be like, what are you doing? They're like, I, I, something happened in the middle of the night. Some, you know, I woke up and there was something like I couldn't move. I was paralyzed. Something was holding me down. You know, it was right in the room with me. And I was paralyzed for like five, ten minutes, and as soon as it let up, I bolted out of there, and I could hear things behind me. And we would have this happen over and over with random, like wow. I'm talking about, like four or five people over the course of the my childhood, the same exact experience that you know didn't know about the experience. Let's put it that way. Uh, you know, we'd have there'd be a couple times we'd you know be in you know, darkness laying in bed and there'd be like somebody flashed a light bulb in, in like I took a picture like with the old time cameras with a flash bulb, if you remember. The, like that would happen. And oh, you'd be sure. like, yeah, you know, you wouldn't know what it was. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it, it, it's pretty well, yeah, my family, like you could, if any of them, you know, well, there's not many left in my family. Most people passed away, but my sister and I, we would tell you it's, what I'm saying, she would back my story up. My mother, would, she, who is still alive, she would back the story up. So yeah, it was it was something else, man. Wow, that's crazy, man. So um, so now in this search of, I know you said something about you were you were talking, you were trying to contact the devil. So were you actually like talking to spirits that were speaking back to you, or because I know with the Ouija board. And ironically, I don't know if you knew this, but the Ouija board was developed here in Baltimore. I didn't know that. No. <laughs> yeah. Baltimore is also known for witchcraft, strong witchcraft and stuff like that. Um, different things along the lines of the Druids and how they used to sacrifice children and stuff like that. So anyway, um, but yeah, so when you were doing this contacting the devil or whatever as you were doing it? Like, it was through the Ouija board? Yeah, through the Ouija board and, um, you know, whatever spirit it was, I mean, there were times that we, you know, have spirits say things. I couldn't remember to tell you what they said, but felt like we made contact. A few times we had, like, some pretty crazy stuff happen, you know, sort of like you see in the movies where the candles get blown out, and then all of a sudden you're like, what the heck was that? Oh, you must have done it, and, you know, everybody's accusing each other. But, um, yeah, man, it was it's a real thing you don't want to mess around with. So, okay, so now um, when you got to the point of, uh, of graduating high school, um, what did you What did you end up doing? As far as did you go into the to the military? Did you go into college? What was your path at that point? Uh, you know, I, I weird enough, I was able to be a pretty decent football player, um, and my grades were okay enough. 
And so I, I went to college and, uh, I, you know, did make it into college. And, um, of course, once I got into college, I, you know, blew my knee out and then, um, ended up, you know, just getting hooked on painkillers and partying and, uh, of course, sleeping around and basically, you know, was in college for five years and finally left. I think a couple credits short of an actual degree. <laughs> so it's like, uh, hey, it was five or six years um, of delaying, you know, getting out into the world, I guess. So um, so you left school with no degree, and obviously that's never the best combination. Um, so what was what happened as far as, like, what were you doing with yourself, with your life at that point? Well, I had, you know, I went to college in in New York and decided my roommate from college, um, uh, we decided to move down here to Florida. So I moved down to, at this point, you know, my brother, my other brother that was still alive, my sister, one of my two sisters, um, she was down here and my father was down here. So we moved down to the, you know, Tampa area, actually St. Petersburg, and, um, you know, moved down the water. If you live, you know, well, you live in sort of cold country, so everybody lives in cold country. They think they want to go move on the beach of Florida. So that's what we did. And basically, uh, once I got down here, I ended up getting, you know, the worst possible job for a guy like me, and that was uh bartending and uh bar managing at a place right on the water um and so you know for a good number of years that's what i did and that only fed my habits of you know sex and drinking and drugs and and all that type of thing but uh actually you know for those years uh you know nothing kicked in that bad it wasn't until later that things got out of control so then, um, at, you said bar managing, right? Yeah, I was bartending, bar managing, you know, living the American dream. <laughs> okay. So, um, when you, when you got to the point where, um, I, I heard you say that it got worse after this. So, like, what was it that triggered this worst, um, part of your life? And how old were you at that time? Well, really, you know, the story just sort of goes like this. I was uh, working at the bar and, um, you know, sort of running it at this point, and I met met a girl and got married and decided, you know, to go into, like, restaurant management. I've always been pretty competent, even though I had my downside, and so I ended up, you know – Marrying this girl and we, I got into, you know, running some restaurant chains and things like that and was, you know, sort of successful for a while. Um, we had moved up to Jacksonville because I was, you know, running that, that area of the particular restaurant that I was running. And, uh, right around my 30th birthday, I guess it was, uh, I had a full blown nervous breakdown which at the time came on out of out of nowhere really and um you know 
my whole life changed in that moment, uh, you know, from severe, severe panic attacks to thinking I was losing my mind, which was, you know, really always a fear of mine. And after that happened, I couldn't go without having a drink uh, just to leave the house. And, you know, my wife married, you know, that I was married to at the time. Uh, we're no longer married, but at the time we, you know, had a had a child, had a son. And, you know, probably about his first birthday, my addiction was so bad, she she wanted to move back to Tampa from Jacksonville to be around her family because I wasn't very much help. So I, we both moved back. She originally wanted to move back without me, but we both moved back and gave it a shot. And once we were here, everything just continued to, you know, go down for me where um, my addiction just, I couldn't stop drinking. At the time, I was on a, a lot of, you know, medication for depression and anxiety and all these other things. And they're just, we just got to this point where my wife just looked at me and said, Hey, man, this is not what I signed up for. I, I did not sign up for a guy that can't even get out of his own way. And, you know, basically, you know, I kicked me out and then, um, I was, living with my brother for a short time and then his addiction was getting really bad. So both of us in our addictions together wasn't good. And, uh, my life at that point when my, my ex-wife, um, and I ended our, our marriage for the next two, two years or so, my life got really bad is better, you know, worse than it already was. I was, um, started shooting drugs for the first time, um, started doing some things that I never, ever thought I would do that uh, I don't, I wouldn't even talk about publicly if they asked, but, you know, um, just really, really self-degrading things. At this point, you know, I'd attempted suicide a bunch more, um, a few more times and, um, you know, really, um, lost everything, lost family, my friends, my dignity, my self-value, self-worth, and found myself, you know, in and out of psychiatric wards and detox units and um, totally out of my son's life, totally uh, no hope whatsoever to somehow stay alive. Wow, man. So... <clears throat> Now, obviously, you know, you're in your 30s at this point, so you're getting close to the point where you met Jesus. How did you get introduced to Jesus? Yeah, man, this is where um, things really take a turn. So I had, you know, like I said, been in and out of uh, detox and psychiatric wards and um, I made one last attempt to try to stay with my brother, and like I said, his addiction had gotten really bad, too. And so I was uh, on my last ropes, and I attempted suicide again. And this time, for whatever reason, they took me to a, a psychiatric ward in Tampa. And um, when they did that, I 
um, when I got out, I knew no one because I'd lived in St. Pete. And so uh, that's when I had my moment, my moment of walking down a road, nowhere to go. And it sounds so cliche, but it is so true. I was walking down a road, lost, coming out of this psychiatric ward and just cried out to God. God I knew existed, I just didn't believe could love me and said either kill me or or change this because I know you're not doing this for your own amusement. So do one or the other. But I can't just keep waking up alive. And uh, I walked a little while further and my phone rang. And um, it was a guy that I had met in a detox unit <clears throat> probably a year before, and he was uh, a Christian, and he said, hey, man, are you okay? I, I felt like the Lord told me you're not okay right now. What's going on? And I was like, this is crazy. And I was like, no, I'm not okay. And uh, he came and picked me up, and it was um, – he took me and introduced me to this old man that um, – I now call Pops, but he was the first guy to, like, really explain salvation and grace and mercy and Jesus and the love of God and unity with God and all that stuff to me. And that's when I finally got saved and sober, but I relapsed a few more times. I didn't get it right away. So, you know, I've done my share of altar calls, um, but... uh that was really when I started to really see God and know that my life was meant for more than what had been living. Wow, man. So I know obviously there came a point in time where you were, I guess, starting to find an interest in the mental health arena, but was there anything that was happening before that point that, you would say, okay, this was when you realized that you needed to get involved in that? Well, you mean the mental health arena or sobriety? <laughs> I mean the mental health arena. Um, but, I mean, sobriety, I mean, obviously that would be something that would come, you know, before that or around that time. But I guess, obviously, because you had to find something to do with your life. And, I mean, unless you were just, you know, not working at all. Um, yeah, I got you. I, I, I understand what you're saying. So, I, you know, after, you know, meeting that guy pops and finally getting, you know, uh, sober and, and getting to know Jesus, I knew that there was no way I could ever go back into the world and try to be like a financial planner or something. And I knew God had called me to do ministry work of some sort. And, you know, I fought the call a little bit at first, like anybody, but, um, you know, really felt like, you know, the people I'd seen, you know, during my own chance, you know, attempts at recovery, whether it was in a detox or whether it was in a psychiatric ward, I knew that these people, a lot of them wanted help, but they just weren't capable of getting out of their own way. Um, and um, I ended up being ordained as a pastor by the ch you know the church that I got sober at, and 
um, really started to walk with men coming out of addiction, um, especially the homeless community, and feeling like, you know, called specifically to uh, to that group of people. Um, right after, probably, you know, a couple years into my recovery, I went uh, to Orlando and opened up a men's recovery um, part of a church out there. So I started a, basically started a, a men's, you know, drug and alcohol program as part of this Spanish-speaking um, Protestant church. <laughs> so, um, and that experience right there alone is really where my, my journey, especially into understanding racial inequality, uh, social justice, um, understanding racism uh, towards the less fortunate, towards people of color um, on a whole new level because I was working with specifically a, a pastor from the Dominican Republic and I was sort of uh, the spokesman for the organization and, you know, he helped me to understand why he would want a white man running his org- organization from like a city council point of view and just really seeing, you know, the atrocities that happened there. But, um, you know, at the same time, you know, understanding addiction was one thing, but understanding the components that go along with uh, making person become an addict in the first place really began to um, drive me, you know, I wanted to know this more because I didn't buy what I'd been told. I didn't buy the, the, the story that it's just a disease and genetic and and I really started to got back, went back to school, started to learn a lot about, you know, counseling, understanding a lot about trauma. Um, and that's when after a couple of years out in Orlando, I moved back to the Tampa area and, um, you know, continued what I had always done, working with the homeless community, working with, you know, men coming out of addiction and, um, that's right around when, uh, it became time for me to, um, I started the Timothy Initiative, which is the organization of men that I, I now run and, and founded 11 years ago. But, um, it's interesting because the addiction part I've always, you know, felt called to, but the mental health part of it really has came more in the last 10 years, um, as the more I understand it, you know, the mental health component that goes along with addiction and then just the mental health part of people's journey that aren't in, a, in addiction, but yet struggle with mental health and understanding how um, those people feel, like I said, you know, ostracized or pushed to the margins. And so just seeing so many tie-ins with, you know, social justice, um, just racism and just the way people see other people as a whole and judge them, whether it's for their skin color or the way that they um, are acting um, when it comes to mental health issues or, you know, even addiction to the, to the guy that's on the street corner. But we don't, there's just so much power in understanding the story behind the person and, you know, I could go on and on about it, but I'll stop there because I know you like to ask questions. <laughs> yeah. I've kind of had one brewing in the, in the, since you were talking, but 
But that was good, though. Um, I did want to go back a little bit. I wanted to know, how did you know you were called to the ministry? Like, what was it that happened that was causing you to sense that call? Or I don't know if it was a prophetic word that came to you or uh, a burden that came on you. I don't know what it was, but how did you know? Two things happened. One was it was a prophetic word spoken over me, um, but I rejected it. And um, I actually went out and relapsed after that prophetic word. So I never really put that into too much context, but I got sober again. And then um, I tried to get uh, a regular job. Figured now I'm sober. Now I can make money and, 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 you know, find a hot wife and, live the American dream and I'll be able to do it now because I'm sober and I, I know um, I'm pretty smart so I can do that type of thing. And I could not, every door shut possible. I couldn't have got a job at McDonald's and I, I just, I was just, no, I was just, I couldn't get out of my own way. And there was this moment where I was sitting in a bat was sitting sitting in my standing in my bathroom looking in the mirror and and like god what is going on it was almost like in that moment there was just this uh similar situation to the one where i was walking down the road and cried out to god but this time i was like you know crying out to god like what is, now you got me sober what for you know so i could just be sober and miserable and, you know, felt like the Lord say, you know, you are, you know, I got you this way so you can help other people. It's to glorify me, not to glorify you. And I knew then, okay, my life is going to be about glorifying him. And the area he has called me to is, you know, addiction is which would later become mental health and suicide prevention and, um, you know, really speaking out and, and telling my story. Okay. Wow. That's powerful, man. So you brought up something that really is like, um, it's kind of interesting because it doesn't seem like you grew up this way. So I want to know like how, okay. Like what drew you to, the Spanish-speaking Protestant church where you started to learn about the racial inequalities, all this kind of stuff, versus, like, I guess maybe I'm I'm thinking, like, the area where you grew up in Syracuse and stuff like that, you weren't really exposed to that kind of thing. You weren't really seeing racial injustices or something like that. Right, right. So basically you know no i i grew up in a you know predominantly white uh cl- you know lower class not wealthy white people but white people nonetheless um very few people of color um my father's side of the family my father and grandmother and that side were kentucky you know racist and you know from the start and it just i never sat with me I always felt wrong whenever they were, I was never like, yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, understood what the, what was happening. And that would end up being, to be honest, that would end up being a, a major factor later on at the end of my father's life, him and I not being able to ever really get in relationship because of 
because of racial issues um, and just the way that I, he knew I stood on things. So that's a whole other story. But, um, you know, I had in my, here's the interesting thing. When you're down on your luck and you're trying to do anything possible um, to stay, stay, you know, alive, I, you know, worked a lot of, you know, day labor places and things like that. And, it just seemed to constantly get under Spanish speaking leadership. So I'd be like, and I just knew God was sort of showing me something. I may not have really totally understood it then, but just being, you know, on these day labor where they treat you like crap. And then I would be like one white guy on a all Hispanic, you know, lawn crew. And then I would be the laborer and they would be the boss. And, and it was just like this interesting dynamic that I just started to learn a lot from. And, um, you know, I could look back at a lot of my times at running restaurants and, and, you know, a lot of the people that I worked with that I was friends with or whatever that were Hispanic and had came across the border and, um, working three jobs to, you know, living with 10 other people in a hotel room trying to send money back to Mexico to get their family across. Um, and just being so like in awe of their hard work and what they would, what they were trying to accomplish and, uh, just say, you know, noticing how these people would do anything where, you know, the typical white person, you don't talk to them the right way. They're going to get all offended and quit the job where, you know, these people had to do whatever they could to, to, to make a living. And, um, you know, a friend of mine, you know, had came to me and he said, man, uh, I know this guy from the Dominican Republic who's starting this church out in Sanford. Um, he needs a, a white guy to go be the spokesperson. And I was like, what? And I'm like, no, I'm not going out there. And there was this moment where three times um, they had asked me to do it. And the third time I was getting ready to say no. And I remembered the story of Peter denying Christ three times and feeling like, oh, are you kidding me, God? And just be, and, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go. I'll give it a year. And so I called the guy back and he's like, and I'm like, I'm going to do it. And he goes, what? Cause I think I'd already said no. He, and he's like, you're kidding me. And I was like, no, I just felt like the Lord showed me something. So I'm going to go. And so I, I went out to Stanford, which is just outside of Orlando. And, um, yeah, I don't speak Spanish, by the way. Um, so it was <laughs> a real humbling time, brother. Let me just tell you, I was humbled beyond, beyond belief because we they didn't have any money. It was like a real small, like, you know, almost like house church guy was, running, but he had a connection to be bringing people over from Puerto Rico because in Puerto Rico, uh, gangs and stuff is so bad. Nobody can get sober there because it's such a small island that, you know, they just end up running with the gangs again. So he had a connection to like get these people brought over and then try to help them. So we had a direct connection from, you know, the Puerto Rican uh, population. So that's why they needed to to do this, but I mean, we, with the rest of the time, you know, it was 
seven days a week, you ate chicken and rice, and that was it. And they were Pentecostal, so, you know, I'd sit there and try to run the sound on a little tiny soundboard in this house for, like, three, four-hour-long services where it was all in Spanish and just really, like, feel the spirit move, though, even though I didn't understand anything. Um, then, you know, my first time preaching, I preached in a and had a translator and, and learning how to, you know, preach, you know, with – to an all Spanish congregation and with a translator and just learning so much, um, just about culture and about, you know, the struggle for illegal immigrants and, and just being able to be part of that and just know so many amazing people was, uh, really, um, you know, how we say God's always doing something and he was really doing something at that time period in my life where it, completely reshaped me and um, began the foundation for who I am today. So just out of curiosity, with all these years that you've been around them, I'm assuming it's been about, what, 10 10 years or maybe a little bit less that you've been around a Spanish-speaking congregation? I mean, I'm not there anymore, but, yeah. I mean, Oh, okay, okay, my fault. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was – Part of the that story was just the beginning then, of something. Yeah, that was the beginning. That was the beginning. Um, but I ended up, um, you know, at about a year or so, feeling like, you know, long story short, the Lord was calling me back to be in my son's life and back in Tampa. So I, I um, felt like a word from God to go back. And the same night, the, the pastor the, from the Dominican Republic heard the same word and blessed me to go back. And so I came back to Tampa and actually stayed on the couch of my, the guy who got me sober pops. And, um, you know, just really trusted in God because at this point now I don't have anything. So now you got to understand like, okay, sure. I was ordained as a pastor and had been working as a pastor for years, but, it had been at these little no-name places, not like resume builders. So I'm a I, – I don't have a driver's license because of my, you know, drug convictions and whatnot. And um, so all this stuff I've been doing wasn't going to lead me to a job. And so it was a real time of trusting God that he had something for me, and he did. But I had to really submit to that and – on faith, you know, walk that out. And really over a course of a weekend, he introduced me to a few different people that would end up uh, greatly influencing the rest of my life because uh, just who they would end up becoming by connections and things they would end up doing for me to get me started and um, lead me to, you know, starting the organizations that I've started and, um you know, the communities, the people that I would be around and the way that I live my life now. Um, yeah, it was just radical. So I got back to Tampa, um, and uh, this was 12 years ago. And, um, I, you know, the this part of my journey began. So you didn't meet the hot wife in um, in the Spanish congregation? <laughs> <laughs> Probably met a couple of them, but they weren't meant to be my wife. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah. so as far as like when you, when you got back to, uh, Tampa and all that and you were now about to be your son's life, how mm-hmm. was that you, when you re-entered his life? And how many years had it been since you have been in his life? Yeah. So it had been a few years since I'd been in his life. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, probably hadn't seen him in a year, but it'd been a few years since I'd seen him regularly. Um, so it'd been quite a while. Um, here's the big thing. Let me just explain it this way. So I was, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars in debt for child support. And when I was in Orlando, obviously they couldn't pay much, but I was paying a little. And my ex-wife was not, like, pushing for the money. She just wanted me sober, but she did want some money if I was going to want to be back in my son's life. So me coming back here and trusting God was a a hard thing to explain to a non-believer. And also it was just a hard thing to do because – now I don't have any job or how am I going to pay this money even though I'm supposed to be in my son's life. But I'm trusting you, God. Well, check this out. I got back on a Saturday. Sunday, I went to my, my, my friend Pops said, let's go to this Bible study group that I go to. It's all my old friends that are in ministry. You'll love it. So I go and I meet a couple people that like would change my life. One would become this guy, Carlos, who would become my spiritual father. But The other was this woman stood up and said, you know, hey, you guys all know my son. He's relapsed again. He's been drinking. He, You know, please pray for him. He's just can't seem to get sober. And we really count on him to run our family's uh, business. And now we're out of luck. And so we don't know what to do. So please pray. So I went up to her after and, and, you know, gave her my card and said, listen, I'm, I just moved back, and I, if I can be of any help, you know, let me know. Um, this is kind of my field. So I got back on a Saturday, worried about everything. Sunday, I meet this woman. Monday, she calls me and says, can you help us with our son? Got him into detox. Um, you know, they paid me a few hundred dollars just to get him into detox. And then when it came time to get out of detox, they're like, hey, can you help out? We don't know what to do with him. I'm like, yeah, I just moved back. I'm sleeping on a guy's couch. I don't know what I can do. And they're like, well, how about this? Would you disciple him? And I'm like, well, sure, but he's a really bad alcoholic. I don't know if discipleship's going to help. So she was like, how about this? Would you be willing to move in with him and one-on-one you know, kind of disciple him in, in recovery and, and whatnot. And I was like, well, and she goes, we'll pay you. And I was like, okay. And so here's the amazing part. We're in Tampa, meet her, all that happens. So she's like, we have a house in St. Pete. Um, you can use that. And so turns out, dude, her house is a big house right on the Gulf of Mexico, on the beach. And and it was five minutes from my son's house. And they were paying me like $1,000 a week cash. 
Wow. So I took the step and faith in God. And basically, within four days, God had me back in my son's life, my child support paid off, and a chance to, to spend time with my son on the beach. That's how God does things. Wow. That is amazing. Man. Yeah. So, so after this point in time, um, obviously, uh, there was a point in time where you were, um, you were about to be, I, well, I'll say it this way. I know that you were obviously involved in your son's life and all that, but I know that you were still basically wanting to be married again. So at what point in time in this journey did you meet the woman that you would marry? Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't say I wanted to be married again. It wasn't like I was looking for it. Um, I just jumped into ministry head on. Uh, one thing led to another. I mean, relatively quickly, I started working with the homeless community and helping men. And then I ended up meeting this organization called the underground and they needed help building out, um, a, a you know, their new office space, and they, it's, you know, they were a church network of church planners and all this, and a friend of mine was recommended me, so I ended up overseeing the job with all all these guys that I would meet on, you know, these homeless dudes, and, and gave me a chance to walk alongside them and, and get them some cash, and yet talk to them about Jesus and, and recovery, and um, and it was just this amazing thing, and so, and we got to build out this you know, this space for this church network, which was this amazing org, still is an amazing organization where they just totally believe in decentralized church and the, their mission of the poor, the margins, social justice, um, small home church over mega church, you know, people that lead, you know, living at a moderate rate so the money that any money goes in it goes to help the people just like great values and so over the 13 months of building out this building i became part of of the underground the organization and um became you know basically uh you know like a, a leader or whatever and they're the ones that actually you know were like when that project wrapped up so, like, you need to still keep walking alongside these men and encourage me to start something officially, which is, you know, uh, when I started the Timothy Initiative, a few other traumatic things happened in there, but that led to that. But um, it was through that organization a few years later that I met my now wife. What's up, family? This is Norman. Thanks for listening to New Numa. We appreciate you, and that includes your feedback. What do you like most about the podcast? What are your favorite subjects? What types of guests would you like to hear more? Shoot us an email today at new.numa.podcast at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts. Peace.